two days ago <clears throat> on Friday was my 10-year anniversary with my wife Nadine. And um, I remember celebrating our anniversary two years ago in Kelowna, where we used to live. And uh, the way we chose to celebrate was, well, one of the ways we chose to celebrate was just driving around in my mom's little white Chevy Cavalier convertible, just enjoying a nice Kelowna summer day uh, driving around. And we were driving along a highway in Kelowna, and I remember this big truck just pulling up alongside us. Some young guys in the truck, and in the back of the truck they had three or four big mountain bikes with the big front shocks on the front end of the bike. And, and um, one of the guys rolled down the window of the truck and he yelled out to me. He said, it's kind of a girly car that you're driving, isn't it? And I leaned over to my wife, Nadine, and I said, did he just call me a girl? And um, so I slowed down a little bit and then one of the guys yelled something else out. I won't repeat in church or anywhere. And, um, and I was getting a little bit ticked off, you know, and, um, and then one of the guys yelled out, get a truck so you can drive like a real man. And I just thought, okay, come on, we're not playing this game any longer, okay? So I slowed down really, you know, a lot, and they just kept on driving by. Now, what I am happy about, though, is that the guys in the truck did not know that Nadine and I had just finished getting pedicures at a spa. <laughs> <clears throat> And uh, at that moment, I was so unlike, you know, those guys in that truck. <laughs> now I'm going to get lots of jokes and, and, you know, ridicule from you. But do you ever notice that people in the Bible who were so unlike Jesus, so unlike him, tax collectors, prostitutes, cheaters, liars, people who were in adultery, broken people, sinful people, hurt people, so unlike Jesus, they really enjoyed being around him. They enjoyed listening to him. They were, they were drawn into his presence. They felt comfortable in his presence. and They liked being around him. But notice this, the people who thought they were like Jesus, that appeared to be like Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, they didn't like being around him. They despised him and they hated him and they plotted and eventually killed him. The people who were unlike Jesus liked being with him. People who were unlike Jesus or appeared or like Jesus, or appeared to be like him, despised him. Today we end the, the, our series on the prodigal son, and we'll focus today on the younger son. We've been talking about this parable for three weeks now, and follow along in your Bible in Luke chapter 15. And the people who Jesus was telling this parable to could find themselves in this narrative. They could see themselves in the story that Jesus told. And the audience that Jesus is talking to is described in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. They say this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. The people who were unlike Jesus were gathering to, around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And the tax collectors, they would have identified in this parable with the younger son, the younger brother. And like Rosemary taught last weekend, this parable that Jesus taught was pointed directly at the Pharisees so that they would identify themselves with the older brother. It was pointed at them to, to point out their religiosity and their hypocrisy and their pride and their self-righteousness and appearing right, but inside they were full of sin and they didn't want to acknowledge it. 
And you see, in becoming a Christ follower, in being a Christian, we can either grow to become more like the Father in this parable, full of compassion and grace and forgiveness and mercy and acceptance, or we can become like the older brother, self-righteous and judgmental and full of pride. So as you think of yourself, are you more like the Father, welcoming people far from God, or are you more like the older brother? If you think of us as a church, and who, how we portray ourselves, who we are as a church, a collective of individuals, are we more like the Father, welcoming people far from God, or are we like the older brother, muttering sometimes, who is that guy here? Why is that person here? Why is that sinner here? Who are we like? Because older brothers repel younger brothers. These two groups of people do not mix. They don't get along well. Church, we want to be like the Father as a church. We want to be welcoming people far from God, people wanting to come back to God. I just want to remind you, this Tuesday night at 7 p.m., we're going to have a little bit of a training session here. Leonard Bueller, the president of Power to Change, will be here helping us how to share our faith better, how to share our story of how we encountered Christ and, and sharing that with other people. So you are, by all means, invited to come. I hope you will be here Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. As well, we have our... Uh, Stampede Breakfast this coming Saturday here at our central campus, and I invite you to come with someone. Don't come alone. If you're a Christian, don't come alone and just eat all the pancakes. Bring someone with you. Bring someone with you who you're trying to build relationship with, your neighbor. Someone who, if you invite them to church, they would say, no way, I'm not coming to your worship service. But if you invite them to a Stampede Breakfast, they might come and foster that relationship, maybe to the point where you'll be able to share the hope that you have someday. The reason I think that people who were so unlike Jesus liked being around him was because Jesus taught a new way of connecting with God, of a relationship with God. Jesus often used comparisons, and he would say, relationship with God is like a, a shepherd having a relationship and, and, and caring for his sheep. Or he would say, in another place, a relationship with God is like God being the vine and you're connected in, you're a branch, you're connected into God. He's your very life source. In fact, you can't exist disconnected from him, out of relationship with him. And in the parable of the prodigal son here, Jesus is saying, your relationship with God is like a father welcoming back his rebellious son. And the prodigal son here shows the journey that we must take to get back home with the father, to be in relationship with the father. In our journey, we must all come to a place where we recognize and just declare openly our utter and desperate need for God to rescue us from our sin that brings death and our sin that causes us to live in a lost existence. And so this parable begins in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and following. Starts like this, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger son makes an unthinkable decision. He goes to his father and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, being the father, divided his property between them. Now what's going on here is the older son in this day would receive a double portion, two-thirds of the father's inheritance, and the younger son would get one-third. And it was only when the father would die that the inheritance would be passed on then to the son. So going to the father, like you can imagine even today and in ancient days, it would be unthinkable for you to go to your father and say, give me my share of the estate. And in the son doing this, essentially he says, I wish you were dead, father. The best case scenario for my life now is that you would die, and I want my money. If you would die, it would be my money, so I want my money right now. 
In fact, what he's saying is, I love your wealth and what you have more than I love you. I want my inheritance. I want to leave this family. I want to leave this community. I want to leave this home where you are an authority over me. I want to be on my own, and I'm gone. And in doing this, the son disowns his father, alienating himself from his family and the whole community, and they're dead to him, and he is dead to them. Verse 13 continues. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. As soon as the son had financial ability, he was gone. And maybe you've seen this scenario play out in your own life or, or someone you know or someone you've heard of. Somehow somebody gets into a bunch of money and then they move to the big city. Maybe they move here to Calgary and they start to spend. And you can imagine this younger son throwing a parties and renting a nice upscale condo and he's buying nice cars and buying all the little gadgets and technology that he could find and and people who are attracted to money now become his friends and girls who are attracted to money and men with money hang out with him and he's just having the time of his life. He doesn't understand anything about saving or investing or managing his finances wisely. He lives far beyond his means and finally his money dries up. And then we're told in the parable there's a famine that hits the country. Maybe something even similar like an economic downturn or a financial crisis. Something happens within the culture. He loses everything. And you can imagine him then at this point. That he goes to some of his friends and says, can, I just, can you just give me a loan here? Just tie me over here. I'm in tough times. I'll pay you back. And no one gives him anything. No one helps him at all. And if you use your imagination, you can almost see him carrying some stuff to the pawn shop every day. You know, his Xbox, his iPad, and he's carrying all of his stuff and trying to sell it to put food on the table, to pay for gas in his car, maybe pay for his condo. And then he has to sell his vehicle. And then he gets evicted from his condo. And he's homeless, on the streets. He's in a tough time. He needs a fix. He's looking rough. And then he lands a job for a pig farmer, a Gentile pig farmer, because no Jewish person would have a pig farm. And no Jewish boy would want to be around pigs at all, either touching them or being around them or eating pork at all. So you can imagine that he is at the lowest point in his existence here, caring for pigs in a foreign Gentile country. And even the pig's food looks good to him. He's at the lowest point of his life. Have you ever made a decision, an unthinkable decision, and then made choices after that that took you to a place that you never imagined you could possibly end up. And you got to that place and you just thought, how did I get here? How did this happen? Maybe you started sleeping with your girlfriend and then pregnancy test shows positive. Maybe you began investing in a shady business deal and you lost everything you had. Maybe you started smoking weed or using some other drug of choice and now you can't imagine not having something stronger in your system. Maybe you had a hard time controlling your temper, you have an anger problem, and and you just kind of ignored it, and now you have a restraining order against you. Maybe you contacted an older friend, an old friend on Facebook, and you're at the point right now that you're entertaining, possibly leaving your spouse, your family, and moving in with that person. Maybe you struggle with habitual sin. Because you see, we as human beings are created with the capacity to choose. We can make decisions that affect our future but don't determine our future. And sometimes we make choices that end us up in places that we could never have thought possible. 
I grew up in Cameroon, West Africa. And for my grade 11 year of high school, I, I went to a boarding school in Nigeria, and my parents stayed in Cameroon, the neighboring country. There were about 12 or 14 of us kids, uh, students who lived in this home, and we had house parents who took care of us and, and were our parents for the year. Four of us guys lived in one room uh, together, and we became really good friends. And early on in the school year, we decided that we were going to sneak out one evening. And uh, so we, we paid off the security guard so he wouldn't tell on us, and we went to a restaurant, and we just hung out. Late at night, everybody else was asleep, and we snuck out and, and just went and hung out and snuck back in and didn't get caught. And then a little while later, we thought, well, we'll sneak out again. And we snuck out again and again and again and again. And it was our teachers who actually sensed that something was happening, something was up. And uh, we were falling asleep in class, and uh, we weren't doing well in our school marks. And so our teachers talked to our house parents, and, and we got caught. We got found out. And I remember the four of us just sitting in, in this room, and we were saying, how did this happen? How did we get to this place? How did this happen? Maybe you've been in a similar situation. You see, verse 17, though, says this. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, there's a mysterious turning point here in this parable. Up until this point in the parable, the son is moving further and further and further and further away from the father until this point. We read, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. As Christians, we regularly find ourselves in a place where we need to confess. We need to repent for the things that we've done wrong and, we, and receive forgiveness from, from Jesus Christ. That's just a normal part of the Christian life. That's a normal practice for us. We confess, express our heartfelt remorse, and then receive forgiveness. But in order to connect with God, every human being must come to a place like this younger son, where for the first time they acknowledge their sin and confess it to God and declare that there's nothing that they've even done good that could even warrant them asking for this forgiveness. And we could use a word to describe this change in the younger son here, the New Testament word called conversion. And conversion literally means turning, you're almost turning your face from one direction and turning it into another direction. A turning, a conversion, and a spiritual turning, a spiritual conversion involves turning from yourself, from your sin, which is called repentance, and turning towards God, which is faith and belief. Turning from oneself involves a changing of your mind, it involves a coming to your senses, a changing of your thinking and your feeling and your living, and as, in well, as well as in, it involves a change of how you see yourself. Because maybe at one point you thought, well, I'm okay, I'm, I'm good, I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I am good enough, really. Maybe you thought, well, I'm self-sufficient, I can handle life on my own. But the turning that we see here of this younger son and the word conversion means a recognition, realizing that we, are, we have a spiritual poverty. We're in desperate need for God to do something. And despite all of our best efforts, we are not okay. And, and this is something we cannot do on our own. This turning 
And the younger son here models for us a way to come back to the father. And there's no other way to come to God for the first time or for the hundredth time except you come to the father in repentance. Repentance is the way of the younger son. And the son clearly acknowledges and understands his sin. He knows what, he's does, what he has done wrong. He knows that he's utterly lost and helpless. And because of all that he has done, he is dead to the father. He acknowledges himself. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy. And in his words here, I hear the cry, the, this prayer of the tax collector, just three chapters over in Luke chapter 18, where this tax collector just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And I hear as well, echoing David's prayer, David's cry to God in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And the son has a long list in his head of what he's done. How he's wronged heaven and earth, his father, and he's truly remorseful, and so he gets up, and he goes to his father. But here's the thing. You see, the son knows what kind of welcome that he's going to receive when he gets home. He knows that most likely there's going to be a ceremony held for him called a kazaza ceremony. First century Jewish custom dictated that any Jewish boy that went away from the family and lost his inheritance, squandered this wealth, just lost it completely, if he dared to return home, the entire community would hold a ceremony for him. And that with everybody present, in this ceremony, it would symbolize how much destruction he has caused to the community, how he's broken relationship with the family and the father and the community. And they would hold this ceremony when the son would come home and someone from the community would take a pot like this and they would all gather around with the son present, everybody present, and this pot would symbolize the son's life. And then someone from that community then would hold the pot and with everybody standing around, he would break it. And in doing this, they would be saying, this pot is like your life, and look at all of this destruction that you have caused, the brokenness that you have caused. Everything that is right and true and good, you have broken. You've broken relationship with the community, you've broken trust, you've broken your father's heart, and you've broken yourself. The damage that you have caused is beyond compare. How can you possibly put this pot back together again and make it whole? It's impossible. And let this broken pot be a symbol of your brokenness. Your life is broken. You are not whole. You are not welcome here. You are not part of this family anymore. In fact, you are cut off. And as the son approached home, this is the image of what he was going to see take place. But the parable that Jesus tells does not include this. Luke 15, verse 20 says this. He starts his journey home, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. And as you know from the past two weeks, a Jewish father does not run. This is an embarrassment to do this. But maybe the father was trying to reach the son before anyone else in the community could come and start this ceremony. 
and imagine yourself as the son, how you would feel approaching the father with years of regret and shame and the weight of guilt and the weight of conviction of all he had done wrong. And then he sees the father running towards him like Jason Hildebrandt said in the video, the father with arms wide open. And I want you to know today that you have a God in heaven who is your father and he runs towards you. He pursues you relentlessly. He sees you and he knows you and he runs to you constantly. And when the father meets the son, the father throws his arms around his son and he kisses him. And this phrase in the Greek here means that he kept on kissing him. He just didn't kiss him once, he kept on kissing him. And then the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get the chance to say, but hire me on as a servant. The father interrupts him and says, bring the best robe and put it on him. And the robe is a sign of dignity and honor. And the father says, bring a ring and put it on his finger, which is a sign of sonship. And sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and he began to celebrate. I mean, what a beautiful picture, a depiction of a father welcoming home rebellious son. And some of you need to know today that when you come to God in repentance, he runs towards you with grace and compassion. And there is no ceremony like this, no broken pot ceremony, because there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. See, what's interesting here in this whole chapter 15 of Luke is that there's three parables that are told. The first one is a parable of a, a shepherd who's lost a sheep. And the shepherd leaves the, all the rest of the sheep and he goes out to find the one sheep who was lost. And when he finds the sheep, he throws a party. And the second parable is of this coin that was lost. And this woman that loses the coin searches her whole house. And when she finds it as well, she throws a party. And in the parable of the prodigal son here, the son is lost and the listeners are set up for someone to go out and find the son. But no one, no one goes. And Jesus tells these, these, these three parables back to back to back here and he's just inviting the listeners in his day and he's inviting us today to ask the question, who is gonna go? Who goes to find the son? Who should go? Whose responsibility is it? Who should go to look for him? And Timothy Keller, author, pastor, theologian, makes a strong case that it's the older brother who should go and look for the younger brother. The older brother. Keller says that the forgiveness that the father extends to the son here is free. The father had compassion and freely forgave the son the pain and the hurt that he had caused and he welcomed him back into the family relationally. The younger the younger brother's restoration was free as it concerns the father, but it came at enormous cost, enormous a cost to the older brother because the father just couldn't reinstate the younger son into the family because everything that the father had at this point belonged to the older brother. The younger brother coming back into the family as a son would cost the older brother a lot. There was no other way he could be a part of the family and share in the inheritance again as a true son except the older brother go out and look for the younger brother. And I wonder what the implications are for us, church, today, as it pertains to evangelism, to sharing our faith. Those of us maybe who are like the older brother need to go out 
and find the younger brother, find people who are far from God so that we can come back to the Father as well. Get rid of our selfish attitudes, our pride and our self-righteousness. You see, either as an older brother, we need to look out for the younger brother. But here's the thing, you see, the younger brother in this parable has a Pharisee for an older brother. The younger brother in this parable has a Pharisee for an older brother. But here's the thing, we do not. We have an older brother who is telling the story, telling the parable. There's a third son in this parable here, and he's the one telling it, and he is the son of God, and he is our brother. He is neither a rebellious younger brother, and he's neither a self-righteous, prideful older brother, but a brother who not only travels to the next country, but he travels all the way from heaven to earth in order to rescue us and find us. And he gave up his rights as the son of God, and he humbled himself and became a servant here on earth, and he gave up his life so that you and I could be a part of God's family. That's our Jesus. And whether you identify yourself as an older brother or a younger brother, we have rebelled against God. We are rebellious. And we deserve separation, alienation, isolation. We deserve a broken pot ceremony like this. But Jesus comes to rescue us and find us. Jesus himself says, I came, the purpose of my coming to earth, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in order to save us, he was stripped of his robes. He was stripped of his dignity. He was shed his position as a son of God and came to this earth as a human being, as a baby. And on the cross, his own father forsake him and cut him off. Like in a kazaza ceremony, he was no longer the son of God. He was broken for his, from his father so that you and I could be made whole. So the broken pieces of our life could be put back together and made whole again. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. His heart stopped beating so that you and I could come back to the father, that our sins could be erased. We could be forgiven and we could be made alive by entering a relationship with God, we have an amazing Jesus, an amazing brother. We do see that in this story. And the cost for us to be reinstated as part of God's family cost Jesus his life, and you need to be moved this morning. You need to be moved with the, the cost that it took to bring you home to the Father. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in one chapter in the book called The Lovesick Father, he retells this story of a young girl who grew up on a soybean farm, soybean farm just outside Decatur, Illinois. Her parents don't care much for the music that she listens to or the clothes that she wears at all and, and her nose ring and stuff like that. And actually, she doesn't care much for her, her parents' music and, and their values and their church and they have an argument one night and she locks herself in her room and her father comes and knocks on the door and she just says, I hate you. And she decides to run away from home. She decides to run away and go to California and more specifically San Francisco. And when she gets there, she's much lonelier than she has in, had anticipated. But soon she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He gives her a ride and he buys her lunch and he shows her the city and he he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's felt in a long time and she desperately 
wants to feel really good. She realizes how much life and fun her parents have kept from her growing up in Illinois and robbing her of, of this fun. And the good life goes on for a month and two months and a year. And the man with the big car, she calls him boss, and he teaches her some things that men like, and it's a side of life that she's never seen before, the parties and the penthouses and the glamour and all of that. It's a completely another world for her. But after a year, the signs of illness begin to appear. And she's amazed, she's amazed at how quickly her boss turns mean. And before she knows it, he turns her out onto the street and she's alone. And there's no parties, there's no clothes, there's no cars, there's nothing, no money. And she uses what she knows how to do on the streets to get what she needs, whatever money she can, and she looks gaunt and she looks thin. And the men she's with now are no longer wealthy and generous, but sometimes they're dangerous and they're cruel. And all of her money goes to support her habit, and she eats whatever she can, and she sleeps on a steel grate, she sleeps on a park bench, wherever she can find. And one night, she's lying awake and listening for the sounds of footsteps, and suddenly, everything around her looks different. She no longer feels like a woman in the world. Instead, she feels like a little girl, and she feels lost. She's cold in a frightening big city. Her pockets are empty, her clothes are in rags, Stomach aches from hunger and she needs a fix and her eyes are filled with tears and then her mind flashes back to this one image of home, of home. And oh God, she cries, why did I leave? My God, my, my dog has more food than I do to eat and, and more than anything else she's ever wanted in her life. She wants to go home. So she makes three straight phone calls to her parents' house, and three straight times it just gets to an answering machine, and the first two times she doesn't leave a message at all, and the third time she leaves a message, and she just says this. She says, Daddy, it's Mommy. Mommy, it's me. I was thinking about coming home. Now, Mom, I'm going to be on the bus that arrives around midnight on Tuesday, and, and if you're not there, I'm just going to stay on the bus, and I'm going to keep going to New York. I just wanted you to know this. And the whole time that she's on the bus, she can't turn off the questions. Should I have given my parents more time? Have they forgotten completely about me? Do they think that I'm dead? What will they say? What will, how will they respond? Will they even be there or will they not show up? And she rehearses this little speech in her mind. Daddy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. It's my fault, it's not yours. Just please forgive me. She hasn't apologized for anything in years. And the bus finally show, shows up at the bus station in Illinois there, and, and the bus driver just says, 15 minutes, folks, it's all we've got. We'll be leaving in 15 minutes, and it's 15 minutes for her to decide the fate of her life. And she looks in this little compact mirror that she has and fixes her hair and puts makeup on, and she notices the needle marks in her arms, and she wonders if her parents are going to notice that. And she walks into that bus terminal at 1 o'clock in the morning in Illinois, and she's prepared herself a thousand times for the images of what she'll see in that bus terminal with the cement floor and the plastic benches and everything. But nothing prepares her for what she encounters because the, what she sees when she arrives there are 40 people. Aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and grandparents and they're all there and they're screaming and shouting loudly and they're wearing goofy party hats and they're blowing kazoos and they're cheering like she's coming home from a war and she's a hero or something. And in front of that whole crowd of people, she sees her father standing there and he's got just tears on his face and he's just crying and he's, she can't even look at him and look him in the eye and she walks up to him and she just says, Daddy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, 
and he takes her face and he just lifts it up to his and, and he's crying and laughing at the same time, just his whole body shaking and he just says, I know, I know, I know, baby, I know. And he says, we've got a party to go to. We've got a party to go to. And he picks up his little girl in his arms and he takes her home. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Maybe as we've been talking here together, God by his spirit has just been moving in your heart. Maybe you know Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, and, but God's just revealed some actions or attitudes in your heart that you need to confess to him. And it's just so clear to him, to you, that you need to come to him with just a repentant heart and just, just ask for forgiveness from some of the things you've been doing, the way you're living your life. I just invite you to do that right now. Maybe you're like the older brother and you've been respectful and respectable and people think well of you and you've tried so hard to keep up the self-image and, and there's pride in your heart and you're judgmental and maybe you often mutter as well, what are these sinners doing here? You're not still, you're, you're not at home with the Father. And you know it and it eats you up sometimes inside. And I just invite you now as well just to confess attitudes of your heart. Just come right with God. Maybe you're like the younger brother and you've made choices that are so messed up, you've goofed up, you're ashamed and you're just regretful. And, and maybe you've never entered into a relationship with God. You don't know what that feels like, what that looks like. You can know him today. You can come home to the Father today. And a good way to start is just saying what the younger brother started to say. Just say this. Pray something like this to God. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm so tired of carrying around my shame and my guilt. I'm so tired of pretending I'm exhausted. Telling people that everything's okay. Will you forgive me through Jesus? I believe, Jesus, that you died to save me and I surrender my life to you. I desperately want you to lead me in my life. I want you to lead me. You wash away my sin and heal my brokenness. Put the broken pieces of my life back together again. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. I just want to offer you a few moments to just talk with your heavenly father now for a few moments. still in a quiet attitude of prayer, if you've made a, an inner decision, inner life-changing decision this morning, I would just be so happy to talk with you, and we've got some prayer partners who will be up here at the front as well, and, and maybe you want to remember this morning, because you, something significant has happened in your life, and if it would be helpful for you, you can come up and pick up one of these broken pieces of the pot here, not to signify your brokenness, but to, but to remember that Jesus Christ has made you whole again. And you're not separated from him, but you are at home with the Father because of what Jesus has done. Just invite you to pick up one of these pieces if it would be helpful for you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May you walk this week as a son or daughter of the living God. May you just exist in that glorious state this week. 
May you quickly come to him with repentance and confess your sin and be made clean again. May the Lord keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.